said, uh, now tomorrow is Resurrection Sunday. He said, so when we get up in the morning, we don't say good morning, we say He is risen. And uh, you don't have to do that, but we do that. And uh, so this morning, his mama went in and said, good morning. And he said, mama, you're supposed to say He is risen. So uh, pray for my wife, amen, and her patience. First Kings chapter number 17, I'd like to begin reading in verse number 17. As you find your place there, let me say welcome to all of our visitors. What a blessing it is that you're here, and uh, and we don't count it lightly that you came to Walridge Baptist Church today. We trust that God will bless you in being here. First Kings chapter 17, verse number 17, the Word of God says, And it came to pass after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick, and his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. And she said unto Elijah, What have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Art thou come unto me to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? And he said unto her, Give me thy son. And he took him out of her bosom and carried him up into a loft where he abode and laid him upon his own bed. And he cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, hast thou also brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourned by slaying her son? And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried unto the Lord, and said, O Lord my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come into him again. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down out of the chamber into the house, and delivered him unto his mother. And Elijah said, See, thy son liveth. And the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that thou art a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in thy mouth is truth. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. Lord, every Sunday you're risen and we're aware of that. And every Sunday you're present and powerful. Work in the hearts and lives of your people and to save sinners that come unto you. Lord, we have set aside this Sunday to commemorate and to memorialize uh, the resurrection of your son Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we approach this hallowed text this morning, with that thought, that note, that song ringing in our hearts, let us be careful this morning for it not merely to be formality and and going through the motions, but Lord, help us to open our hearts to the Holy Spirit that He might speak to us and apply Your Word and do that office work that only He can do in our lives. Lord, it, it wouldn't be unreasonable to think in a group this size that there could be one that's lost and undone. Lord, You chose 12 disciples and One of them, Judas, was a lost man. The Bible says he was a devil. Lord, it wouldn't surprise me in a group this size for there to be someone here that they know religion and they're here because they love someone, they were invited and in kindness they have come this morning. But the tragedy is that though they know somebody that knows you, they don't themselves know you. They're lost and undone. I pray that they not leave here in that condition, but that they would in faith turn to Christ and ask Him for forgiveness Lord, I know if they'll do that, and just as He saved me, He'll save them. And they can be a child of God. Bless everything that takes place today, and may it magnify the name of the Lord Jesus, for it's in His name that we ask all these things. Amen. We have read this morning in 1 Kings chapter number 17, and I'm sure you notice immediately in the reading of our text that we have read a resurrection story. It bears significance for many reasons, and we'll talk about them here in a little while. But I want to say a word before we uh, get into our text about this topic of the resurrection. Or we might say this, of a resurrection. Now the reason I make that distinction is because we have come today uh, to commemorate, to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And certainly there is no resurrection that has ever happened uh, that is of greater importance and power and meaning than the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But as we study the Bible, we find that Christ's resurrection is not the only one recorded in Scripture. In fact, you know that there are 15 different resurrections. Some past, some still future to come. Some of them are personal, meaning an individual was uh, resurrected. And some of them are what we would call corporate, meaning a category of people or a group of people are resurrected. And as we survey these resurrections, we learn some important things about what God does when He raised a man physically, bodily in the Word of God, but also what He does in the life of a sinner that comes to know Christ. Now, when I talk about a resurrection, I've got three criteria that I'm talking about. Uh, The first is this, that life is definitely gone. Uh, In other words, that the person is conclusively dead. They're not near dead. They're not as dead. It doesn't say they suppose they were dead, but rather that the Bible gives us evidence that this person had actually died, meaning that their soul had departed from their body, that they were a dead person, that that body was merely a shell. There was no life in it. The second criteria is that life is divinely given. In other words, life given by the power of God. We'll say a word here in a moment about two resurrections uh, that don't meet either of those criteria. But when I'm talking about a resurrection, I'm not just talking about somebody that was sick. I mean, listen, I've had some days, especially on these uh, these high pollen days that we're living in in East Tennessee, I've had days I wasn't dead, but I thought I was. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about days when you go out and you don't breathe air, you just breathe pollen. Amen. That's all it is. I've had days I thought I was dead, but I wasn't. Uh, I'm talking about people conclusively dead. And I'm talking about the kind of life that Claritin don't give. Somebody say amen to that. I'm talking about God giving life to a person. Life is divinely given. And number three, that life is distinctly gained. What I mean by that is not merely that Uh, Someone's body is animated for a few moments. There are all sorts of phenomena that exist in the human experience of uh, people's, you've heard of these before, uh, muscles, uh, tendons uh, tensing up and and, and binding up and people sitting up in a casket. Or maybe you've read the old stories about Dr. Frankenstein and the monster that he supposedly reanimated. Certainly medical science can take electricity and technology and can make a heart pump. It can make lungs respond. It can do those things. But you know, at the end of the day, that's not resurrection. That's just reanimation. In other words, there's no real life there. They're not going to get up from that uh, bed and go on and live a life. All of the people that we're going to talk about here in these next few moments are people that went on to live life. They died again. Most of them did. But they went on to live life. So that's what I mean when I talk about a resurrection. Now, if I study my Bible correctly, and I, I hope for your sakes that I do and mine as well, there have currently been ten personal resurrections and one corporate resurrection that have currently in the past taken place that are recorded in the Bible. There are still yet five more resurrections that are to come. Some of those corporate and some of those personal. Listen to these resurrections. I'll list them for you. Some of them will be familiar. Some of them maybe not so. The first is what we've read this morning. The resurrection of the widow's son in Zarephath in 1 Kings 17. The second is the resurrection of the Shunammite woman's son or the Shunammite couple's son in 2 Kings chapter 4. The third is the resurrection of the Moabite man that is thrown into Elisha's grave and he touches his bones and he raises up. The fourth is the resurrection of Jonah. Now let's pause there 
And you say, well, preacher, I don't believe that. Well, when you're preaching, you preach it any way you want to. But I believe Jonah died and that God resurrected him. And I've got a lot of reasons for that. We can spend time talking and discussing, but I'm going to count it in the list because I believe that God raised Jonah from the dead. The fifth is the resurrection of Jairus' daughter in Mark chapter number 5. The sixth is the resurrection of the widow's son at the city of Nain in Luke chapter 7 when Jesus stops the funeral and touches the casket, the beer. Uh, the seventh is the resurrection of Lazarus in John uh, chapter number 11. Lazarus in John chapter number 11. The eighth is the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 28. The ninth is the resurrection of a woman named Tabitha, or also known as Dorcas, in Acts chapter number 9. The tenth is the resurrection of a man named Eutychus in chapter number 20 of the book of Acts. Somebody asked me one time, said, Preacher, you always talk about Eutychus. How do you remember that name? And it's real easy. You'd fell out of a window and broke your neck. Eutychus too. Amen? Uh, that's how you remember the name Eutychus. Uh, the eleventh is the resurrection of unknown saints during the crucifixion. The Bible tells us in Matthew 27 there were Old Testament saints that were resurrected and uh, they walked around the city after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The twelfth in this list is the resurrection of the church. We use the term rapture for that. I don't have a problem using the term rapture any more than I have a problem using the term trinity. Somebody say amen to that. The rapture of the church. The thirteenth in this list is the resurrection of the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11. The fourteenth is the resurrection of Old Testament saints at the end of the tribulation period. And the fifteenth is the resurrection of the wicked in Revelation chapter number 20. Now there are two resurrections we didn't include in that list. One is the resurrection of Paul in the city of Lystra in Acts 14. You say, preacher, why didn't you include that? Well, I'm not so sure Paul was dead. Uh, the Bible does not say he was dead. The Bible says supposing he had been dead, they took him out of the city. Now you say, well, preacher, I know that he was dead. I have no doubt. I have a firm uh, conviction, a million percent that he was dead. Well, then you're more convinced than Paul was. Because Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. So I didn't include that in the list. The second one I didn't include is the resurrection of the Antichrist in Acts chapter, or excuse me, in Revelation chapter 13. The Bible says the Antichrist will be wounded with a, a wound, a deadly wound. But the Bible does not necessarily say he dies. It says that he was wounded as it were to death. There's a second reason I didn't include that. And it's because if he is dead and if he is raised, I don't believe he's raised by the power of God. I believe he's raised by the power of Satan. The Bible says they worship the dragon which gave power unto the beast. So in other words, I don't think the Antichrist is going to be resurrected in the way that God resurrected men. It's possible he'll simply be reanimated. He'll be energized by satanic power. But those resurrections are contained for us in the Word of God. I'll give you a little bit of a uh, of account of who all did these resurrections. Now, we know God performed all of these. But God used agents to perform these. For instance, one resurrection was performed by Elijah, one by Peter, one by Paul. Two resurrections were performed by Elisha. Although we may be cheating there because one was performed by Elisha, the other by Elisha's bones. But we're going to give him credit for it anyway. Two have been done, performed by God in the past. From where we stand right now in the past, God has raised two from the dead. Jesus has raised three from the dead. Now, I know Jesus is God, the Son of God, God the Son, God in the flesh. 
But inasmuch as he and his uh, ministry, earthly ministry raised people, Jesus raised three. And then there are five still yet to come in the future. And to our knowledge, all five of these are going to be raised by the power of God directly himself. If we break down these resurrections, we find something even more interesting. Did you know that of the ten resurrections that have passed, six of them were Jews, four of them were Gentiles. Eight of them were men, two of them were women. Seven of them were adults, and three of them were children. Of all of the resurrections total, eleven of them are personal resurrections, meaning an individual was raised, uh, and four of them are corporate, meaning a category or group of people were raised. Eleven of these resurrections have happened in the past so far, ten of them personal, one corporate being the Old Testament saints at Calvary, and four of them are, are still left yet in total in the future. But this is what I thought was most interesting. If you talk about these personal resur- uh, talk about these resurrections and look at them over the grand scope of things, you'll find, you know, seven numbers have meaning in the Bible. Have meaning in the Bible. The number three is the number of God's signature. Uh, the number of four is the number of the world. The Bible tells us in Revelation that the number of six is the number of man. The number of five seems to be associated with both death and grace. You say, preacher, which is it? Well, there'd be no grace without his death. Amen. So it's associated with both. Did you know the number seven is the number of perfection? God created the world in seven days. And He sat back and He rested, not because He's tired, but because He's done. He looked at it and said, it is good. He was finished. So divine perfection is the number seven. Did you know there are seven resurrections before Calvary? And there are seven resurrections after Calvary. And then there's one resurrection right there at Calvary. You know, the Bible tells us about Jesus that it's all uh, through Him and by Him and for Him and in Him. And uh, let me just go ahead and give you my East Tennessee way of saying it. It's all about Him. So you got seven before, seven after, and the one in the very middle is the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, you say, preacher, what is the number eight? The number eight is the number of new beginnings. You know why that is? Because after Jesus Christ rose from the grave, wasn't nothing ever the same. Uh, everything changed in the human experience at that point. Now, as we study through these resurrections, there is, I'm mindful of a, of a rule or a principle that we have as we study the Bible. We call it the rule of first mention. And what that means is the first time something is mentioned in the Bible has certain characteristics and qualities about it that will generally stay true throughout the rest of the Bible. It sets a pattern. Can I use a word you might be familiar with? We could use the word prototype. A prototype is the first one that's created and it's what everything sort of patterned after it and there are some similarities. Well, in the Bible, the first time something's mentioned, it gives us an idea of what we can expect with the rest of it. And it is because of that I want to take a few moments this morning and preach to you about the very first resurrection in the Bible. And it's in our text that we read. The Bible tells us if we were to read through the rest of chapter 17, you're probably somewhat familiar with it, how that Elijah, fleeing from the wrath of Ahab and being hid by the providence of God, goes and dwells by the brook Cherith, and God feeds him by ravens and by a little brook that's there, and then the brook dries up. And I don't know if the ravens kept coming by, but the brook dried up, and God sends him then to go to a Gentile city named Zarephath. God tells him, when you get to that Gentile city, uh, there's going to be a widow woman there that I've commanded Elijah to feed you and to take care of you. Elijah goes to the city, and I don't know what he's thinking. He's probably thinking he was going to uh, roll up on some well-to-do uh, elderly lady that was going to have a big, beautiful house and a swimming pool and a refrigerator full of Doritos or something. But when he rolls up, here's what he finds. All he finds is a little widow woman that's out collecting two sticks, putting them together, 
And he comes up and he says, listen, would you go and, and would you fetch me some water? And she looks at him and she says, sir, I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm gathering sticks. Me and my son are the only ones in our family. We're about to starve to death. I'm gathering these sticks so that we can make one last fire, so that we can bake one little cake of bread, so that we can eat it and then sit down and die. That's how pitiful things are. I'm sure Elijah thought, this woman? You sure, God? This woman? God said, Jeff, that's the woman. So Elijah says, well, listen, you go ahead and do that. But first go, get me some water, make me a cake first. You know, that means put God first in your life. He'll take care of everything after that. Just go ahead and put God first. And so uh, she goes and obeys the Lord. And uh, Elijah gives the promise that the uh, that the barrel of oil, the cruise of oil and the barrel of meal would not fail. And, and you know the miracle of how God just kept providing and providing and providing for that family. Then we find in our text this morning that not long after that, the son of this woman, all that she has left, falls ill and dies. And Elijah goes and raises by the power of God this young man. But you might say, well, preacher, that's good. I appreciate that Sunday school lesson. But what does that mean to me? Can I read a, a passage of Scripture to you in Ephesians chapter 2? You know, when we talk about all these resurrections, they all give us glimpses of a greater truth concerning the resurrection. And it doesn't have to do with God raising a widow's son or God raising a synagogue ruler's daughter, but rather it has to do with the spiritual operation that God performs in the life of a dead, lost sinner when he believes on Christ, God breathes life into him and raises him from the deadness of his sins and gives him new life in Christ Jesus. And Ephesians chapter 2 describes that for us. Let me read a few verses to you. Paul writing to the church at Ephesus says, And you hath He quickened. That means to make alive, to resurrect. You hath He quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. And hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved, through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. You say, preacher, why do you read that text this morning? Well, because I think that what Paul describes explicitly and spiritually for us in Ephesians 2, we have presented to us in this first resurrection story. In other words, we have in germ form, in, 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 in minute form, a picture of what God does for the sinner when He saves him. For instance, look back with me at our text in 1 Kings chapter number 17. And notice three thoughts with me this morning and then I'll be done. First, I want you to think with me about the ruin of the child. In other words, this child becomes sick and the sickness is so sore, the Bible says, that there was no breath left in him. Do you know in some ways that pictures all of mankind? Because do you know that all of mankind likewise has an incurable sickness that will literally lead to and result in our death. Not just our physical death, but our spiritual 
death. In other words, separation from God and uh, eternal damnation and suffering. We have a sickness like this boy had a sickness. For instance, think with me about the despair that this must have brought. It must have been an unhappy day in that home when this boy became sick. The Bible says it came to pass, verse 17, after these things, that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick. Isn't it interesting how the Bible says the son of the woman? Now, if you're reading through 1 Kings 17, by the time that you get here, if it just said the son, you would have known who it was talking about. Elijah's still dwelling in this home. We understand what's going on. But the Bible goes out of its way. It's almost like the Bible's saying that the son of the woman, who's the woman? The widow of Zarephath. This woman that has been obedient to God. This woman that has performed good works. This woman that has done what God has asked of her. Yet her child falls sick and dies of that sickness. It tells me two things. One, it reminds me that this sickness was impartial. Like sin, this sickness did not care who it afflicted and fell upon. It fell upon the one whom we wouldn't expect. If we look at this text, I think it's pretty plain to us that this we don't know his age but that this man, uh, this young son, was a child. He was not an old man. You, you'd imagine, you'd think to yourself, you know, he's probably a good boy. He seems to do what is asked of him. And, and maybe he had even been exposed to some truth with Elijah being in the house. But you see, none of that mattered. The sickness, it was blind to the youth of the child. You might say, well, preacher, it's not fair. His mama is a good mama. I ain't met a mama that wasn't a good mama. Amen. Every son thinks her mama's a good mama. Uh, you say, well, preacher, uh, she's a good mama. She's obeyed the Lord. She's trying to take care of him. She was out there gathering sticks. I mean, he has a good heritage. But you see, the sickness doesn't care. The sickness does not care what kind of home you was raised in. This sickness, it doesn't care whether you are a moral person. This sickness, it doesn't care whether you've been baptized or done good works. This sickness falls upon all men. You say, what is this sickness? It's the sin nature that we are born with. The Bible teaches that we are all born sinners. Men do not become sinners because they mess up. They mess up because they are already sinners. And the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So I think about the this sickness, it was impartial. Number two, I noticed this sickness was incurable. Now if this mama was like most mamas, as soon as her boy uh, fell sick, she probably uh, went to the cupboard and started breaking out all the herbs and all of the spices. I don't know if they had essential oils, but I bet he was drowned in them. She's doing everything she could to try to get her boy... Well, you say, preacher, it doesn't say that. Well, I don't think it really has to say that. You know a mama. You know that this mama was doing everything she could. But here's the reality. This mama, despite all of her love, despite all of her care, despite all of her nurturing, could not cure this sickness. The apothecaries that uh, lived in Zarephath couldn't do anything about it. This sickness was incurable by human hands. It reminds me that like sin, this sickness had no human remedy. There was nothing that could be done to cure the child. You know, there's nothing that a man can do to fix his own sin problem. He can turn over new leaves. He can make commitments and make promises to God. He can decide he's going to try better next time. He can give all of his money away to the poor. He can try to do charity. But none of that deals with his sin problem. The question I have for you this morning, you say, Preacher, uh, God's problem with mankind is, is that He is wicked. No, not altogether. Some men are not wicked. You know what God's problem with mankind is? That He is a sinner and is spiritually dead and there is no life in Him. Uh, listen, you can have the prettiest life, uh, prettiest death that there is to have, but it's still death. 
uh, we make a, 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 a billion dollar a year industry off of when people die, we send them to a funeral home and, and they put makeup on them and they put nice clothes on them and they put them in expensive caskets and they put sprays on, on top and do all of these things. I'm not against any of them. I think it's good to honor the memory of those people. But I'm saying this, no matter what the mortician does, it's still a dead person. It's sickness. It's incurable. Man cannot do anything about his own condition. So I think about the despair that it brought. Number two, I think about the death that it brought. The Bible says his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. Now we learn later in the text that this is this is a figurative language saying that he was dead. And you say, how do you know that preacher? Because later on, the Bible says the soul of the child entered back into this child and he revived. So when it says there was no breath left in him, it means that he was dead. This isn't my message, but I'm going to say it anyway. You know, in the Old Testament, the breath of God is likened to the Holy Spirit. Uh, you, you know uh, why the lost person lives the way they do? It's not because they're any any more morally degraded than you are. Uh, I'll be honest with you. I know some lost folks live cleaner lives than some Christians I know. Uh, you know why a, a lost man is alienated from God? It's not because he don't have religion. Uh, listen, I, I know some lost people, they are more religious than some saved born-again believers that I know. You know why? There's no breath in them. There's no Holy Spirit living within them. There's no life of God living within them. That's the problem. That's the problem. This young man, it led to his death. And you know, it's a reminder of mankind's condition before God. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men. And here's why. For that all have sinned. In other words, we don't, we're not born righteous before God and then one day we decide we're going to become a sinner. We're born a sinner. That's our natural condition. Death has passed upon all men and we sin because we are sinners. Uh, we're not sinners because we sin. Even if we never performed an unrighteous act, our very nature is sinful. It's who we are. And the Bible says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. As a sinner, our inheritance, our wage, that's what a wage is, right? You work for it all week and you got it coming to you at the end of the week. Uh, only usually we're wanting those wages to come to us. But because of our uh, sin, uh, sick condition, death is our paycheck. It is our wage coming to us. And that's why Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed unto men once to die. It's appointed. Uh, men have spent untold uh, billions of dollars trying to stay death's hand. But the reality is this, death is coming for all of us. Now you say, well, preacher, I'm saved. Well, maybe you and I as saved people will get to go out in the rapture. Our death has been dealt with at Calvary. But it is the natural condition of mankind to be facing down the prospect of death. We have spent for the past uh, year and a half, we have spent trillions upon trillions of dollars. We have destroyed lives and economies and all these things because of the avoidance of death. But I got bad news for you. We're all going to die of something one day, sometime. Death is the inheritance. It is the lot of humanity. So the, the death of, uh, that it brought reminds me of the sinner. But then notice the disbelief that it brought. It reminds me of what sin does. Verse 18, the Bible says that the woman looked at Elijah and this is what she said, What have I to do with thee? O thou man of God, art thou come unto me to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? Now, one might think that at this perilous situation, at this moment of despair, that maybe this woman would have reached out to God and said, God, please, please save my son. Lord, you're my only help. But that's not what she did. Instead, in bitterness of soul and spirit, she cries out, she shakes her fist at Elijah and at God and says, how dare you do this? Why did you come here? You just came here to accuse me, to indict me, to condemn me, and to slay my son. 
Now listen, before I'm judgmental or perceived to be such this morning, I know it was spoken from a place of pain. But it also reminds me of mankind's response to their sinfulness. Instead of saying, oh my soul, I'm a lost sinner, I'm hopeless, crying out like Peter did, depart from me, Lord, for I am unclean, I'm a man of unclean lips. Instead, what does the sinner do? He shakes his fist at God and says, how dare you bring my sin to remembrance? How dare you slay what I love? The reality is, Elijah hadn't killed this boy. And I want to be careful with what I'm about to say. I'm not suggesting that this son's death was due directly to some uh, disobedience or act of sin that this woman had performed. But we understand that death as a condition of humanity is the product of sin. Not that a person dies because they've done something to uh, to draw the ire or wrath of God, but rather that the reason death exists, the reason it touches humanity, is because sin exists. And instead, mankind of seeking God, instead they shake their fist at God and say, how dare you? How dare you? It reminds me of, of the lost sinner, the ruin of this child. But then notice with me the raising of this child. Now we've got to hurry here. You're, you're listening way too slow. I've got to hurry. So stay with me this morning. But you know, when I look at what it took to raise this child from the dead, I'm reminded of what it takes to raise a sinner from the dead. I'm talking about spiritually, a lost person that's dead in their sins. You know, in some ways, it took some of the things and it, and it produced some of the same things whenever God raised this child that it does in the life of a sinner when they come to know God. You say, well, what do you mean, preacher? Well, first I notice this. Look at verse 19 with me. The Bible says that he said unto her, give me thy son. Let me say number one, there was a confrontation that had to take place. In other words, this woman couldn't run from Elijah. This woman couldn't scoop up her boy and run away. If she wanted help, she had to come to the man of God. Now, let me be very clear this morning. When I'm talking about the man of God, in the Old Testament we could talk about Elijah, but we know who God has spoken through today. God, who at sundry times and divers manners hath in the uh, last days uh, spoken unto us by the, or hath in times past spoken unto us by the prophets. What was Elijah? He was a prophet. He hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son. So in other words, Elijah in some ways reminds me of Jesus in this passage. And let me say, if you're going to be raised from the deadness of your sins, there's no way to avoid it, friend. You're going to have to go to Jesus to be raised from your deadness. That's what had to happen here. She had to take this boy and put this boy in the arms of Elijah. And likewise, there's a confrontation that has to take place in the heart of a sinner. He's not just going to stumble his way into heaven. He's not just going to trip his way into righteousness. You've got to be humbled and come to Christ and ask for forgiveness if you seek to be raised. From your deadness. You remember what Christ said to Mary in John chapter number 11? Jesus said unto her this, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, it's true that those that are biologically, physically raised by the power of God are done so through the power and agency of Christ in a sense. But that's not what He's talking about here. He's talking about spiritual resurrection. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in Me Though he were dead, yet shall he live. Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Then he looks at her and he says, Believest thou this? We, I think, sometimes lose the emphasis in the reading of God's Word. Uh, he's getting ready to promise that he's going to raise Lazarus uh, from the grave in John chapter number 11. But before he does, he looks at, at Mary, looks at his sister and says, Mary, don't you understand? Uh, she said, Lord, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. He said, me being here or not being here ain't the issue. I am the resurrection. If I show up, life has showed up. I am the resurrection. 
Whosoever believeth in Me shall never die. He'll live. Then He looks at her and He says, Mary, believest thou this? I'm struck by the personal confrontation that takes place there. It's not unkind. It's not rude. It's not hostile. But He's saying, Mary, you understand, this ain't about Lazarus and it ain't about uh, medical science. It isn't about the grave. It isn't, it's not about any of them. Mary, it's about Me. Do you believe in Me or don't you believe in Me? And this morning, people would say, well, preacher, I, I go to church. I'm here. It's a beautiful Resurrection Sunday. I'm here. I'm with my family. That's wonderful. I'm honored. I mean, I'm tickled to death that you're here. But understand that just coming here today, that, that don't do anything with God. Say, preacher, I understand that, but I've been baptized before. I remember my old pastor did it or, or, or maybe somebody at a church. I went to vacation Bible school. That's wonderful. I believe in baptism. We believe in it so much around here. We got a special place just for it. I'm for, I'm pro baptism for those that have been saved. But baptism is not uh, what's going to save you. You say, preacher, I, I do good works. I do good works. That's wonderful. You ought to join our church. Uh, we got enough people around here that do bad works. Amen? I'd love some people that do some good works. But the reality is that's not what gets you in righteousness. That's not what curries favor with God. It's not what gets you peace with Him. You say, well, what does, preacher? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by Me. Have you come to Jesus yet? There had to be a confrontation. Number two, I noticed this, there was an identification that took place. This is probably the most mysterious part of the passage. But I think when we think about what Jesus does for the sinner, there's an explanation here. Look at verse 19. The Bible says, He took him out of her bosom and carried him up into a loft where he abode and laid him upon, notice these three words, His own bed. Look down at verse 21. The Bible says, And He stretched Himself upon the child three times. Now, I can only use imagination to some degree, but this is what I imagine took place. He takes the dead body of this child and He puts it in the place where He dwells. He puts it in the place where He dwells. Some of y'all that don't mean nothing to, but some of y'all ought to be getting some help from that. He puts that dead child in the place where He dwells. And then He gets up and here's what He does. He takes His hand and puts it where that child's hand is. And He takes His hand and puts it where that child's hand is. He takes His foot and sits it on that child's foot. And this foot sits it on that other foot. He takes that face and sits it on that child's face. What's He do? He is taking the life that lives within Him and He is applying it to that child. There is an identification that's taking place. Here's what He's doing. He's saying, I'm taking and I'm leaving the place where I dwelt and I'm putting this child where I dwelt. And now when God looks from heaven down on this child, He does not see the child. He sees me stretched out on top of it. You say, preacher, how does God save a sinner? Well, there's an identification that takes place. Here's what God does. He takes where you've been and He occupies that place. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, a lost sinner condemned, deserving of hell, unrighteous, alienated from God. That's what He did on Calvary. You belonged on that cross. I belonged on that cross. But He went and took our place on the cross. And then what did He do? He took us and put us in His place. And here's what He did. He took His righteousness and He put His righteousness on us. So that when God looks down at us, he does not see us, but He sees Christ. That has to happen for a man to be saved, for him to be righteous with God. That's the operation of how God saves a man. He, he takes him and, and takes his place. There is a substitution so that when God looks at us, He treats us like He treats His own son. You know why? Because at one time He treated His own son like He should have treated us. Remember the question that echoed from the cross across the valleys and hills and mountains of eternity? Christ cried out and said, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? 
There's no answer given to that in our text. The reason is because it's a rhetorical question. Jesus already knows why. God the Father already knows why. What's He wanting? He's wanting you and me to think about it. Here's the answer He's wanting us to come to. I'm the reason. I'm the reason that He forsook Jesus, that He might never have to forsake me. So there was an identification that had to take place. That's what Romans 6 says. says, Know ye not that so many of us, as we're baptized into Jesus Christ, we're baptized into His death. Therefore, we are buried with Him by baptism into death. And that's not talking about water baptism. It's talking about what the Holy Spirit does when He baptizes us into the body of Christ. When He saves us. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, you say, when that happened? When He took our place on Calvary. We've been planted with Him in the likeness of His death. We shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection. In other words, there's an identification that happened. I notice number three, there was an intercession that had to take place. Verse 20 says this, that he, Elijah, he cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, hast thou also brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourned by slaying her son? And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come into him again. In other words, you know what Elijah did? He got in between that child and God and made intercession. That child was dead. That child, even if God could be tangibly reached just by traveling miles and and climbing heights, that child had no means to get to Him. So here's what God did. God sent His man to go down to where the child was and to get in between the child and the Heavenly Father and to pray and to say, Father, this child can't get to You, but I have come to it and now in its stead I am begging You to give this child new life. It's a reminder for us. The Bible says that uh, that there's uh, one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The Bible says if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. Uh, he, he is, He's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. The Bible teaches us that one of the things that Christ did in dying on the cross is He made intercession for us. Romans 8.31 says this, What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? How did God get to be for us? How did that happen? Well, it says, He that spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? If He'd give us Jesus, what wouldn't He give us? And then He says this, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is He that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. You remember Paul talked about we're raised with Him in His resurrection. Well, what happened? We couldn't get to God. But God came to us in the form of His Son. And then here's what He did. He identified with us. And, and, and he, in His death, we identify with Him. In His burial, we identify with Him. And in His resurrection, He raised up into heavenly places, ascended on high. And you know what He did? Spiritually speaking, positionally, He took us with Him. And put us on high. I'm gonna say a word about that in a moment, but I got I got a message to preach, people. You gotta you gotta hurry. Listen, and you know the Bible says this in Romans chapter four. I could read it all, but let me just read verse twenty five. Says about Jesus who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. What happened? He made intercession. He went in between us and God and made peace through His cross. So there was an intercession. I would say this number three or four or five or something. There was a regeneration that took place. 
Uh, look at verse 22. The Bible says, And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came into him again, and he revived. Because Elijah did this, now this young man has life. But it's not like his old life. It's new life that's been given to him. He's been given new life. Isn't that what Jesus said He'd do for the sinner? He says in John 5, 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth My word and believeth on Him that sent Me hath. Not hopefully one day He will if He holds out real good and, and, and goes to church and pays His tithes and, and, and minds everything. No, it doesn't say He hopes to have. It says He hath everlasting life. Present tense. You come to God, confess yourself a sinner and ask Christ to forgive you and save you. God don't put you on the layaway plan. He saves you by His grace. He gives you eternal life in that moment. You say, well, He might take it away. No, He won't because... The Bible says he shall not come into condemnation. You know why? Because he's passed from death unto life. Hey, listen, Christ said this in John 10, 10. He said, the thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. He said, this is why I'm come. I'm come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Hey, listen, it's one thing to have life. There's lots of people walking around. Their lungs are breathing. Their, their, their heart's beating. I was going to say their brain's firing off, but I'm not, I'm not going, I'm not going to speak too much about some folks. But what about that abundant life? I'm talking about having more than merely what biological life can give you. Have you got abundant life this morning? I'm not just talking about you draw a breath. I'm not just talking about you go and work a paycheck and, and you have responsibility, you mow your yard, you fix the sink, you just muddling through and your life has no meaning and purpose. That's life. I get that. That's life. I'm talking about life more abundant this morning. I'm talking about knowing God and the fullness of His grace, having a prayer life, reading the Bible and hearing God speak to you. I'm talking about knowing the will of God and living in the will of God. I'm talking about abundant life this morning. Have you got that abundant life? Well, listen, you can have it this morning. You say, how can I have that? He'll raise you from the deadness of your sins. He'll give you grace and life. And then, I, you know, I, there's a lot I want to say about this. I just don't have time to. But look back in verse 19. That Well, you may feel that way, but they may not. I don't know. <laughs> verse 19 says this and he said unto her give me thy son and he took him out of her bosom and I like this the Bible says he carried him up into a loft where he abode and laid him upon his own bed you remember when we were in Ephesians 2 way back two hours ago at the beginning of this message you remember what it said verse 4 says this after it talks about our deadness and our wickedness it says but God who is rich in mercy for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath raised us up together. Now listen now, listen now. Uh, the Bible says, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. You know what He did? I, there was an elevation that took place. That took that boy and put him on a higher plane. Where did he put him? He put him where he dwelt. And you know what they did? They got up there in that loft and they sat together in them heavenly places. So what are you getting at, preacher? I'm saying this, when God saves a man, He elevates him. He makes him a new creature. And now listen, I understand, I understand we'll say, well, I'm just an old sinner saved by grace. And I believe that. But for the grace of God, that's all I'd still be. And I understand that. But you know, when you got born again, you got made more than just an old sinner saved by grace. You, you became, I'm talking about a certified child of God. The Bible says, 
For as many as received Him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God, even to them which believe on His name. Listen, you became a new creature in Christ Jesus. You got pulled out of that miry pit, that miry clay, and set upon a solid rock, and your goings were established, and you were made a new creature. I'm talking about you ain't what you used to be. If you got saved by His grace, you got elevated, you got put in a new position, and all those blessings and all those riches, the Bible says it in this way, that He's given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. You got given all that in Jesus Christ. There was an elevation that took place. Well, let's say one more thing this morning we'll be done. I, when I read this, I'm interested by the ruin of the child. And I'm interested by the raising of the child. But I don't know about you, my Bible don't end at verse 22. My Bible has verse 23 and verse 24. And this is how they read. And Elijah took the child and brought him down out of the chamber into the house and delivered him unto his mother. And Elijah said, See, thy son liveth. The woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that thou art a man of God and that the word of the Lord in thy mouth is true. I want to say a word about the return of the child. And let me ask you a question. Why did God raise the child instead of just taking him on to heaven? If we were to believe this child knew God and, and, and had placed faith in him, mean, I can understand why God uh, would, would resurrect a, a lost man biologically so that he'd have an opportunity to believe. But, but we have record after record of Satan. In fact, the vast majority of people that God raised in the Bible were people that believed on the Lord that had faith in Him. Why do, why do you think God raised him? You know, the Bible says a strange thing in the book of Psalms. It says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. When God raised a person from the dead biologically, other than Jesus Christ and other than those that after Calvary are able to be raised, I'm talking about those corporate resurrections, the rapture that will take place, the Old Testament saints, uh, the things like that. But when he, raised some, when he raised Lazarus from the dead, he was doing something contrary to what he would have preferred. I, I mean, he would have preferred Lazarus just be in heaven with him. No more pain, no more heartache, no more sorrow. Why did He raise Lazarus? Well, for the same reason that He raised this boy from the dead. If you read uh, John chapter number 11, you know what you find? You find Lazarus raised from the dead. If you read John chapter 12, you know what you find? You find Lazarus sitting around at a table bearing testimony to what God did when He raised him from the dead. In other words, why would God raise this boy? Why wouldn't He just take him on to heaven? That would have been uh, in some ways easier. Well, here's why. There was work to do. There was a work to do. He takes him and he gives him back to his mother. Why does God do that? And let me then ask this question. Why does God save the sinner? And then having saved him, why does he not take him on to heaven? Why does he leave the, the child of God on earth? Why are you and I here this morning? Well, for two reasons. Let me give them to you. There's probably 200, but we don't have time. Shoney's don't close, but they get busy when the Methodists get out. So we're going to try to hurry. Number one, there was a work to be done. Why did he send this child back? Well, here's why. Because he was the only son of his mother who was a widow and had no husband to take care of her. And his responsibility was to take care of her. You see, here's what God knew. God knew this mama couldn't live without that boy. It was his responsibility to take care, to protect, to work. There was a work on earth for him to do. So he sent him back. You know, it reminds me of what the book of Ephesians says in Ephesians chapter 2. We, we read a little bit of this. It says this in verse 8, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in. Say, preacher, why does God leave us here? Because there's a work to do. 
There's a work to do. God could just save you and take you on to heaven, but now you're a child of God, you're a servant of Christ, and He's working in your life to make you more into the image of Christ. I'd say there was a second reason. Elijah walks that boy out, and I love gotcha moments. It's a fault of mine. And I just imagine, I mean, I don't know, Elijah's more spiritual than me, but if it had been me, I'd have been grinning like a possum when I come out of that loft. I mean, I would have been... You see this? Your son living. And how does she respond? I think this is amazing. She says this, Now by this, I know that thou art a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in my mouth is truth. Why does God leave us here? One, we are His workmanship. But two, listen, we are His witness. Remember, in, in, in the narrative here, Elijah in some ways reminds us of Jesus. How does a lost and dying world know that Jesus is alive? Well, they can see Jesus in the lives of those that live by His grace. They can look at us living in the power of God, in the will of God, in Christ Jesus. And you know what they can say? Now I know that thou, talking about Jesus, art not just a man of God, but art the God man. Who you said you are. The Son of God. God in the flesh. I know He is who He says He is. Because I can see Him living in the lives of His people. You know what the greatest witness and testimony is to a lost world? Listen, if God wanted to bear witness through tongues, He'd be doing tongues. If He wanted to do it through, through handkerchief healing, He'd be doing it through handkerchief healing. If He want, listen, if He wanted to make His will known by having Benny Hinn smack you with a 46 regular suit coat, that's what He'd do. But you know, God didn't choose to do any of those things. You know what He did choose to do? He gave us the New Testament church and the indwelling Holy Spirit in the lives of believers that we might bear witness and testimony to the life of Christ in us. Paul said it this way, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. In other words, Paul says, I've done mortified self and I'm living, but it ain't me living, it's Christ living through me. And thereby the world can see that there's life to be had in Jesus Christ. If they'll just come to Him. Hey, listen, where's workmanship? Where's witness? Preacher, why am I still here? God ain't done with you. God has a work for you and God has a witness through you that He wants to do. Let's bow together this morning. As a musician comes to play, the altar is open and you, you know that you can come right away. You don't have to wait for a prayer or for a note to be played. If you have business with God, feel free to come to meet Him at this altar. Father, bless this invitation. And may it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name. With our heads bowed, our eyes closed, Miss Connie's going to play.